What role does pop culture play in criminal justice policy? Or to put it another way, how do the movies and TV shows we watch affect how cops, lawyers, and judges do their jobs? I reached out to Fritz Umbach for an answer. I'm Fritz Umbach, and I'm a historical criminologist at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice, which is a campus of the City University of New York. Umbach is a historian. I, I, stay, I, I came at the topic of criminal justice as a historian. I was trained as a 19th century historian. But when I came to New York, I realized that there would be value in bringing a historical perspective to notions of criminal justice and criminology. He came to me with a list, a top five, a greatest hits compilation. Think of it as the top five criminal justice misconceptions, or as he put it, five of the most unexpected things that criminologists know, but that the general population might not. This is Crime Scene. I'm Jordan Fenster. I joked with Umbach that we could blame all our misconceptions on the movies. Films like The Warriors or New Jack City. For better or for worse, criminal justice is now part of both popular culture and politics. It's something that everyone feels they should have an opinion about in a way they wouldn't about other municipal functions. We don't, say, care much about how the water gets to our homes, right? That's, we trust the city government to do that. But issues of criminal justice, we all now think we have an opinion and think that opinion matters. So without further ado, here are the top five things we get wrong about criminal justice. One is sort of the rise and fall of forensic science. The second would be this notion that cities are cauldrons of crime. The third would be the role of the trial in our criminal justice system. The fourth would be the, what we think of as the rise of mass incarceration, that this is a new thing. And the fifth would be the extent to which the war on drugs fueled what we talk about as mass incarceration. Let's get started, as we probably should, with number one. The, the rise and fall of forensic science. Pop culture is uh, going one direction, um, and forensic science in the courtroom is going another direction. There's really two forensic sciences. There's the forensic science that was developed by law enforcement um, and applied to criminal justice issues. And then there's the forensic science that started in science and then was applied to criminal justice. And the first, we increasingly now recognize to be very unreliable. Even fingerprinting, which I think is iconic, is understood to be less than perfect. Things like bite mark analysis or fiber analysis. Think about all the movies and TV shows you've seen where police dust for prints and compare fibers found at a crime scene to a suspect's shirt or something. Those, those kinds of investigatory techniques and courtroom proof no longer carry the weight they once did. We realize that it's junk science. On the other hand, things, scientific techniques that emerged from science uh, that were held to the same rigors as other scientific techniques, like DNA analysis, that matters. To understand the difference, you have to look at history. Thank goodness we spoke with a historian. Forensic science, as we think of it now, 
sort of emerges in the early 20th century as police departments are trying to present a professional scientific image to the public in the 19-teens. They, police departments had been under a lot of criticism for being corrupt. They were collecting bribes for politicians. Uh, they were deeply involved in vice markets. And so they wanted to persuade the public, since their credibility was at stake, that no, no, that's the past. Police departments are now professional and scientific. And so they begin to, in essence, invent scientific forensic analysis uh, and use them in the courtroom, and few people doubt them. It's a misconception that Umbach said has consequences. At the same time, I think one of the more damaging consequences of the popular notion of forensic science is that we think of the operations of our criminal justice system as scientific. It's merely so much science coming off a spool. In reality, criminal justice is a lot of politics. It's a lot of interpretation, and it's full of the messy reality of human existence. I could talk about forensics all day, but let's move on to number two. Number two is the notion that cities are cauldrons of crime that were safe here in the countryside or in the suburbs, and it's only in the cities that there's crime, and if we hadn't had cities, we wouldn't have had crime, and it just happens when you pack too many people together uh, like rats. I think about a movie like The Warriors, which presents New York City as a gangland paradise. Warriors, come out to play. Warriors. And in reality... Up until 1958, you were safer in New York City than the rest of the country. And in, today, you are safer in New York City than many mid-sized cities. That urbanization and even high density doesn't, in fact, relate closely with crime rates. Now, crime rates are going down nationwide, across the board. And with a few exceptions, America's biggest cities are safe places to live. Much of the crime increase that's happening in urban areas is now happening in mid-sized cities. The one big city that ha or the two big cities that have growing crime rates are Baltimore and Chicago. Some cities are seeing an increase in crime rates, some cities are seeing a decrease. Certainly New York City continues to see in an astounding fashion a drop of crime that 20 years ago no one would have thought was possible. Well, there was a moment um, in the 1960s when crime was growing faster in urban areas at the moment of urban crisis. Um, and as cities depopulated, that people decamped for the suburbs, taking their tax dollars with them, and city services declined, industries left the cities, that there, there was an astounding increase of crime in places like New York City. And that happened at the same time that we have an expansion of popular culture talking about crime. And we don't have CSI rural Idaho. We don't have CSI Iowa. We have CSI New York, CSI Miami. And we, where we set our crime stories, where those narratives unfold, is always an urban area. And so it's easy for people to assume that cities are cauldrons of crime that density causes crime, and it's just not the case. Up next, number, number three. three, the role of the trial in our criminal justice system. This one reminds me of my cousin Vinny. Ms. Vito, please answer the question. Does the defense's case hold water? We often think, in part because of popular culture, and in part because we talk about the courtroom as a metaphor for so much that happens in American life, 
we think that most trial, most court criminal cases go to court. And in fact, they don't. 99% of all criminal cases are solved by a plea bargain. And in fact, the vast majority of criminal cases have been solved by a plea bargain since the late 19th century. It was certainly, you know, in the early 20th century, it's about 75, 80% of cases. Now it's up to 99. But the courtroom is not how we adjudicate cases anymore. Most of the time, it's plea bargaining. And it happens out of the limelight, sort of beyond the scrutiny of the rest of the criminal justice system. The pleas are struck in private between prosecutors and defendants, and there's very little oversight of how that process unfolds. Let's get to number four. Um, so number four, then, is the rise of mass incarceration. You can probably take your pick on this one. Shawshank Redemption, The Longest Yard, maybe, or Cool Hand Luke. What we've got here is failure to communicate. Rewind the tape and go to 1950, we would have about the same number of people under state control, except that many more of them would be in mental institutions, and many fewer of them would be in behind bars. In 2018, the ratio has changed. We have many more people behind bars and many fewer in mental institutions. It, um, here in New York City, the population of Rikers is about 10,000. 4,500 of those likely suffer from um, mental illness, and maybe seven or 800 of them, because, you know, the population is changing all the time, suffer from severe mental illness. Of course, the populations are different. It's not as though it was the same group of people in mental institutions back in the 50s as are in prisons now. In 1950, the people that the state was controlling were more likely to be female, white, and older. Um, and today, it's overwhelmingly um, men, disproportionate share of people of color. So it's not the same population. It's not as if we opened up the mental institutions and everyone walked to the jail. The result is far from rehabilitation. People with mental illness end up in jail, and neither problem is solved. On the other hand, the lack of community support for people who are struggling with mental illness has meant that a increasingly large number of people with mental illness are getting caught up in the criminal justice system because they are not, they're not on their meds, and that an increasing number of crimes um, are in fact caused by this population. At the same time, the role of police officers has changed, and it's one they're not trained to play. And we've turned our cops into the frontline mental health providers in the United States, jobs for which they are manifestly untrained for and we shouldn't be asking them to do that. Cops shouldn't be mental health practitioners, and our jails shouldn't be mental health hospitals. This has become the default mental health system for much of America. Finally, we come to number five. What role did the war on drugs play in mass incarceration? New Jack City, anyone? My brother, I think there's been a little misunderstanding. You know what I'm well, saying? Yeah. The war on drugs went wildly awry. It was a gigantic national mistake that didn't restrict the supply of drugs or their purity. But for 20 years, 
it hasn't contributed to mass incarceration. There was a time when it did. Uh, but for 20 years, for as long as my students have been alive, the war on drugs has not added to the growth of mass incarceration. In this case, politics and changing demographics converged to create a misconception. Well, it, it makes sense that President Ronald Reagan declares the war on drugs at about the same time that our prison populations take off. And there were some years there where, um, in fact, um, drug incarceration did explain the expansion of our p prison population. But it hasn't been the case for two decades. Drugs are menacing our society. They're threatening our values and undercutting our institutions. They're killing our children. From the beginning of our administration, we've taken strong steps to do something about this horror. Absolutely. We have moral panics where we politicians respond to public sentiment, rightly or wrongly, about criminal justice issues. And we have lurches in our policy as a consequence of sort of populist criminal justice policies. But we could let out every nonviolent drug offender tomorrow, and we would still have the world's largest prison population. Umbach is a historian and a professor, so I asked him how he handles this in class. His students arrive with all the deeply held misconceptions we all hold. In fact, Umbach and criminal justice historians like him are hoping to learn from the mistakes of the past, in the hope that they're not repeated. They are in fact shocked, although I'll show them my syllabi from past years, and I would show them the readings that I assigned that in fact connected mass incarceration to the war on drugs. Um, and that I've had to change how I teach because we now have changed how we think. Before I go, I'd like to ask you to please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It would really help me out. And if you can't wait a month for a new episode, sign up for the Crime Scene newsletter at lohud.us slash crime scene. Every week, I share crime scene photos, new true crime stories, police files, transcripts, in-depth discussions, and more, all delivered to your email for free once a week. L-O-H-U-D dot U-S slash crime scene, all lowercase. This is Crime Scene. I'm Jordan Fenster.